Today we're going to be talking about Jonah, but before we start, there's a couple things that I need to mention that are important before we dive in. Uh, the first is that uh, genre is really important here. Um, one of the things about the Bible that a lot of people um, get wrong is sort of a misconception is that the Bible is 100% literal or factual uh, when that's not the case. There is um, an entire third of the Bible that is simply poetic and isn't making factual or literal scientific claims about the universe. So the genre of Jonah is satire. Uh, it's not supposed to be historical fiction. It is meant to be a satirical piece. And there's a couple ways we can tell that this is satire. Uh, for one, no one acts how they're supposed to. Uh, everyone from Jonah to uh, the big fish, to the mariners at sea, to the Ninevites and their king, um, and with one exception, which is one of the big theological points of the book, uh, is that there's one character in the story who uh, isn't part of this satire, uh, and it's intentional to be that way. So the Book of Jonah can be broken down into six parts. Those six parts would be the intro, the storm, Jonah's prayer, Nineveh, the king's prayer, and then the final conversation. Uh, I'm going to go through each of those uh, piece by piece. So in the introduction, we're introduced to the main character, who is Jonah, son of Amittai, uh, which is ironic. Uh, the name Jonah uh, means in Hebrew dove, which is the biblical symbol of peace. And that's hilarious because we know that Jonah is not a peaceful man. He is calling for the destruction of an entire city. Uh, and he is the son of Amittai, which in Hebrew means faithfulness. We know that Jonah is not faithful to Yahweh. He's definitely turning and running in the opposite direction. This irony is intentional, and it adds to this uh, sat satirical effect. Also in this introduction, uh, Yahweh's word comes to Jonah and tells him what he has to do, and he tells him to go to Nineveh, this massive city. Um, and this is where we get to the first interesting word of this book, is Gadol, and the point of it is it's larger than life it is big massive um the imagery that comes along with this word would be 
um, like a tree. Uh, if you imagine the giant sequoias here in California, I think of their large stature and how they grow up and up and up, and they're just so massive. That's what this word is. Um, and in the context of Jonah being a satire, this word is used over and over and over. Uh, the author of Jonah just keeps describing these things with this word, gadol, um, and it's meant to catch your attention and make you sort of stop and think. And so in my my version, um, to get you to understand just the uh, the humor in it, I've changed the word to many other words that never actually repeat, uh, that just mean these large, huge things. Like this one uh, is go to Nineveh, the gargantuan city. Later you get to a colossal wind and a monstrous windstorm and things become astronomical and immense. And um, my goal is to sort of play up this dramatic sort of imagery. Next, we're told that instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah decides to go to Tarshish, which is the exact opposite direction in the farthest place you could end up. Um, if you look at a map and you see where Jonah is, he has to go all the way down to the Jordan and sail clear across the Mediterranean uh, to Spain. And then it is the farthest side of Spain that Tarshish is. Um, so this is literally the farthest Jonah can imagine running from Yahweh. This leads us into the storm. And there's a couple interesting things going on here. First, the, the mariners, these shipfarers, are terrified. And it says that they are calling out to each of their gods. Uh, this is another thing that's meant to be, uh, it's meant to catch your eye. Uh, a reader at the time or a listener at the time uh, would have heard this portion and gone, huh? Um, one of the things that we lose with part of the context of Jonah is that at the time, um, gods are territorial. They own land and if you live on this land you belong to this god uh, and one of the things that come along with this ideology is that the sea is chaotic it's chaos and no particular god owns or runs no one owns the sea no god is out there so for these mariners to be crying out to their gods is absolutely useless because none of their gods can do a thing about it, which is one of the big reasons that Jonah says, I fear Yahweh, the maker of heaven and the sea and the dry land. Um, this is a theological point that Yahweh is the only God who has ability on the sea. He broke the chaos waters at creation. He created the dry land. He created the heavens and he is in charge of the sea. And this makes him a unique God among the area. Another thing that's been going on is this language of Jonah going down. Um, and this is definitely a sermon point. Um, 
but I, I believe it, it is intentional. Jonah um, is told to stand up and go to Nineveh, which is in the uh, up and slightly right direction from where he starts. And instead, Jonah stands up and he goes down to Yafo, down to uh, the ship, and then down onto the ship. And then once he's on the ship, he goes down to the bottom of the ship. And there he falls into a deep sleep. Uh, this deep sleep language is the same from Genesis 2, where God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep in order to create Eve. Um, the image here is that he is essentially dead, but not really. Uh, but he is practically dead. Um, so here, this is meant to be sort of a spiritual death. Uh, Jonah, this prophet who is supposed to be delivering this message, turns, runs the other way, and he is spiritually killing himself. And in the midst of this killing himself, he gets this wake-up call from the captain saying, wake up, stand up. How are you in a deep sleep? You need to call on your Elohim, your your God. Um, Jonah does, and he sort of has this moment of, oh yeah, Yahweh did all this. He made all this. He is in charge. Another thing we get in this storm is an interesting uh, verbiage in the Hebrew that uh, a lot of translations miss. Uh, in my opinion, they screw this up. Um, but during this storm, uh, most translations would say um, the mariners thought that the ship was going to break apart, and so they're terrified. Um, but what is actually going on in the Hebrew is that the ship is considering whether or not it's going to break into pieces. Um, the the language there places the thought happening on the ship. So it's as if the ship is a sentient thing thinking about, oh no, am I going to break? Uh, and this adds to this satirical way of reading this uh, story. So during this storm... They're trying to figure out whose fault this is. The, this chaotic storm must be someone's fault. And so what they do is cast lots. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, this, you'll realize this is something people do sometimes in the story. Um, and just to clear it up a little bit, casting lots is a form of divination. Um, it's something that they did in this area to determine the will of the gods. Um, and Hebrews did this as well, uh, except their version was the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, the Urim and the Thummim is the priestly version. He wears this on himself, um, and we get stories of some of the kings coming to the, the high priest to ask God what his opinion is, and so the priest would use this Urim and Thummim as a form of divination. Um, and this one was God approved. Um, so to cast lots is um, not necessarily something that doesn't exist. It's not something we shouldn't. Uh, how do I phrase this? It's not something that we shouldn't believe exists. It exists and it's possible. Uh, the difference is, is that casting lots uh, for them is calling on all the gods, whereas using the Urim and the Thummim, as God tells us, is doing it the correct way. 
is a correct way of, of divination. Um, and this is it. I don't recommend casting lots. We don't know how the Urim and the Thummim work. It's been lost to time. Don't do it. But realize that it, it is a thing and it is possible and it can happen. You're just not necessarily always going to get Yahweh on the other end of the line. At the end of the storm, um, they pick up Jonah and throw him into the sea. And the mariners have this... Um, it's not necessarily a prayer, but they are talking to Yahweh. They, they're calling on him saying, please do not kill us. Um, and this is actually where we get a, an interesting word that I'm not going to get to here, but the word is nefesh. Uh, please don't end our nefesh. Don't put this man's blood on us. We are innocent. Uh, and then they proceed to what they think is killing him. Um, so they, they offer Yahweh this sacrifice and they making all these promises and we're not told if when they finish their voyage if they become Yahwehists uh, these are non-Hebrew Yahweh followers they're called Yahwehists we're not told anything about them after the fact they, we just have to sort of assume that they kept their vows um, but it's entirely possible that they didn't and that they went back to doing whatever they did get into this interesting thing about the fish. Uh, this fish is also called a gadol fish. Uh, I say it's a colossal fish. Um, this is another part of the satirical language of Jonah. Uh, this massive fish that is coming out of this storm is meant to portray the ancient leviathan, this sea dragon, sea monster, uh, it's this chaotic waters imagery. Uh, this is the big chaos monster. Uh, and it's described in the story as just a, a big fish. Gr granted, it uses gadol. It is a massive fish. Uh, but nevertheless, it's called a fish. Uh, not monster, not serpent, fish. Um, it's definitely meant to catch your eye and sort of give you a chuckle for three days and three nights. Now, I don't know uh, the significance of this number, if there's something the authors are playing off of. Uh, since this is a satirical piece and not historical fiction, uh, the three days, three nights likely are playing off of something, and I don't know if it's something in the Bible or if it's something extra biblical, uh, part of the culture around them. Um, but what I do know is that later, these three days and three nights are then connected to Jesus and his death. Uh, Jesus is in the ground for three days and three nights. Um, so I don't know if there's precedent for the three days and three nights, but I do know um, that we do get the three days, three nights for Jesus from here. And it's here in the guts of the fish that Jonah has this wonderful awesome prayer that I think is just the most beautiful thing ever. Um, it is in uh, Hebrew poetry format, um, which rhymes not words, but ideas. So you get these two sentence pairings. Sometimes there will be three or four, um, usually, but it'll usually be two or three. Um, and so that's sort of how you have to read this is that there's going to be a line, and there's going to be an answering line related to that first line. 
and then there will be another line, and then another line relating to that line. Uh, and it's rhyming these ideas. So Jonah calls out, and Yahweh answers. And then he says, I called out, and you heard me. Flung me into the depths, the heart of the sea. The heart of the sea is the depths. Currents surrounded me. Breakers and waves passed over me. Um, he's been driven out of the sight of Yahweh. Uh, but he, Jonah, is looking to the holy temple, uh, back towards the sight of Yahweh. And these waters surround him. The watery abyss wraps around him and weeds bind his head. Um, this is the part that is really interesting. This is where I will get to that nefesh language. Um, nefesh in Hebrew literally translates to the throat. Uh, for example, um, Joseph, when his brothers sell him into captivity, he is bound at the feet and at his nefesh around his throat. Now, in Hebrew thought, um, the spirit, your animating presence, is uh, wind. The, the spirit is wind, and the wind is inside of you. You breathe. And where do you breathe into? You breathe into your throat. So your throat is also where your spirit exists. Uh, this is where your life is. This is your essence. And so sometimes nefesh will get translated as soul. Uh, so the word nefesh could mean soul or it could mean throat. Uh, currently in my translation, in my translation, I've got both words. Uh, the word is soul throat um, or sometimes throat soul. Uh, and I'm going to use both words every single time and just whichever one is uh, more prevalent in the text, what they're going for is going to be listed first. Um, so here he says, the waters surrounded me even to my soul throat. Uh, the watery abyss wrapped around me and weeds bound my head. And then he talks about how he goes down the cut of the mountain to the frame of the earth. Um, and then Yahweh brought him up from the pit. So he is going down this um, biblical imagery of the word. He's going down the mountain of the earth uh, into the pit of Sheol. And Yahweh is bringing him back up. And then he says when his throat is collapsing on him, he's choking on all of this uh, brine. This is when he remembers Yahweh at, at his worst moment. And it says he entered into his holy temple to pray. Um, this is him looking back at the holy temple and he is praying and he is asking God to see him. And he says instead of preserving empty breath, just sort of talking nothing uh, these people are forsaking their mercy he's saying but i with sounds of thanksgiving am sacrificing uh, what i vowed to you and salvation belongs to you yahweh uh, and this is finally when yahweh uh, tells the fish to vomit out jonah onto land now we don't know how genuine this prayer is coming from jonah uh, given that we know he doesn't like this plan it's entirely possible that this prayer is coming out of a place of desperation and survival, but it's also possible that in this moment he does genuinely mean this prayer and that it is coming from his heart. But what's important is that immediately after he prays it, that's when the fish vomits him out onto the dry land. Yahweh was waiting for that okay from Jonah in order to follow through with his plan. He's on the beach, 
and he's told a second time to go to Nineveh, this gargantuan city, and deliver this proclamation that Yahweh told him. Now, an interesting thing that I didn't mention the first time around, but I'm going to mention this time, uh, the words at the start of this section are, the word of Yahweh became a second time. This word became is also used in Genesis 1 during creation. This is a creative word, and it's passively creative. Um, an analogy would be if someone were to just sort of stumble into a room, that's what creation is doing. Creation sort of stumbles into existence. It passively just comes about. And this gives us a glimpse into what it's like to be a prophet, to be prophetic. To be prophetic is to participate in the creative nature that God has given us. So now we get to go to Nineveh, and it's described as a giant city of the Elohim, the gods. Now this has a couple different meanings, and I think they work together. Calling this the city of the gods means that it is both a pagan city where they worship the gods, but also uh, this is Nineveh. It is the capital of Assyria. And the nations in this area consider their kings to either be the gods or the son of the gods or representative of the gods in some way. So to call this the city of the gods probably means both that it's a pagan city where they worship gods and this is the capital where the representative of the gods lives. So this is Nineveh, the huge city of the gods that is a three-day walk. That is an exaggeration uh, to show how humongous this city is. In reality, it would likely take maybe a day to get through the entire city. Uh, it's massive for its time, but it's not that big. In fact, it says that Jonah actually got through it on the first day. And I'm going to pause here for another word that I have changed in my translation. Other translations say that Jonah began to go through the city either on the first day or in total one day. Um, but the word being used for began to go is actually the word pierce or to bore. And the grammar surrounding it is that it took place on the first day's walk. So in my translation, I have Jonah tore through the city on the first day's walk. Now we get to the prophecy. And in it is another one of those words that I want to highlight. So Jonah tells them, in just 40 days, Nineveh is going to be turned over. Now, this phrase turned over is literally just flipped. It's like what they would do to bread in an oven, literally just turning it over. So in Jonah's mind, this prophecy, Nineveh is going to be literally overturned. It's going to be crumbled to the ground. And this is the entirety of the prophecy. You'll notice in contrast with other prophets, normally they say which God is giving this word, why he's giving this word, and usually some message of repent or else this is going to happen. It's not too late. You can still fix the problem. But Jonah doesn't give any of this. The entirety of the prophecy is yet 40 days and Nineveh will be flipped. And this is meant to add to that satire effect. Jonah is being contrasted with normal prophets, and he doesn't do anything that a normal prophet does. And that's all it takes for the people of Nineveh to believe God.
finally reaches the king. He stands up from his throne, takes off his robe, and puts on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Sackcloth and ashes is a way of physically expressing your mourning or grief. And then he gives this decree that goes throughout the entire city. It goes, A decision from the great king. Man nor beast, herd nor flock, neither taste anything, nor eat, nor drink water. Don sackcloth, man and beast. Scream to Elohim. Everyone turn around from the wrong path, from the violence in our palms. Who knows how to turn around and apologize, so that Elohim will turn around from his burning anger, and we will not perish. So there's two things to note in this decree. Uh, The first is the fast that he calls is no food, no water. So this fast couldn't have lasted more than three days. The other is this phrase, his burning anger. This phrase is literally his burning nose. So this phrase could have been translated either as his burning anger or his flaring nostrils. While I personally like his flared nostrils better, uh, the word actually given is burning, so I decided to go with burning anger. So they must have done this, and it works. God sees them, and he actually apologizes over what he's going to do. What's supposed to happen in your mind when you hear this is you go, oh, God apologized for something. He also did that another time, and this was when he was going to kill everyone, and Moses intervenes, and God apologizes for almost killing everyone. So this being satire, it's meant to be a playoff of that, and you're supposed to realize, oh, this is what Israel was supposed to do at Mount Sinai. The entire city does this, and it gets God's attention, whereas at Mount Sinai, it was only Moses. So now we get to probably my favorite part in this story, which is Jonah's conversation with Yahweh. It's very sarcastic. So this whole thing seems very wrong to Jonah, and he's furious about it. And he says, please, Yahweh, uh, isn't this exactly what I said would happen back when I was in my own country, which is exactly why I fled to Tarshish? Um, I know you. I know you're all these good things. I knew this is exactly what was going to happen. I didn't want that to happen. That's why I got the hell out of there. So please just kill me now. And Yahweh asks him, does this feel good? Are you getting pleasure out of this? And then Jonah goes east of the city, builds himself a little lean-to, and sits in the shade and watches to see what's going to happen to Nineveh. And what's a good prophet story without a prophetic act? So Yahweh causes this plant to grow up over Jonah and be shade for him. And Jonah's very happy for this plant. Clearly, the shelter he made is not doing him any good. And then Yahweh causes this worm to infect the wood, and the plant withers and dies, and it says God smote the plant. And then the sun rose up, and God sent a scorching wind from the east, and this is just hell on earth. And then Jonah wraps his head and wishes death for his nephesh, uh, his life on his throat. He's probably very thirsty. 
And he says again, it would be better for me to die than to live. And then Yahweh asks him, are you in the right to be this angry over this plant? And Jonah says, yes, I am in the right to be this angry. And I'm so angry that I could die. And God says, if you're this angry over a plant that you didn't work for and you didn't grow like a sun uh, in the night, which as a sun also perished in the night, uh, then how could I not pity Nineveh, this giant city that has over 12 times 10,000 people and 120,000 people who can't even tell their right hand from their left from their cattle. Now, this isn't literally speaking. They can obviously tell their right from their left from their cattle. Uh, This is a phrase that means they can't tell good from bad. They can't tell right from wrong. And I really like this phrase. So that is the book of Jonah.